in your son's name we pray, amen. All right, let's go Psalm 49. Psalm 49, if you, uh, if you don't have a Bible, we will have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Um, if you're watching us online right now, uh, we'll put the text up on your screen when we get to that point. Uh, we also highly encourage around right here uh, the use of, a, uh, of a, an app called the YouVersion Bible app. Uh, you'll find digital resources and stuff in there for uh, us specifically this morning. Um, but we also really love physical Bibles right here. We think God uses them in just kind of this special way. Uh, I think he's blessed them in a special way. And so uh, if you don't have a Bible of your very own, we would, we would love to fix that. I can actually give you a Bible, and so contact me after we're done here, and uh, uh, we can fix the no Bible situation actually pretty quickly. Uh, so we closed out our series on Habakkuk last week, uh, and, and so we got plans for the next big series. I've got an idea about what that is, and we're starting to map all that out, and so that's coming, uh, but instead of just kind of rushing right into it, I thought maybe it might serve our church family well uh, to have somewhat of a palate cleanser, if you want to call it that. Uh, just kind of take a step back from these big major series for, for half a moment, and, and instead uh, just kind of focus Focus on something else to, to whet our appetite for the, what's, to, what's to come. And, and because we're walking through the Psalms together as a church family, because we're reading it in our corporate times and, and plugging in little bits here and there during our preaching calendar when there's a hole here and there. Um, and so I thought, you know what? How about in the month of September, we just kind of wholly devote ourselves to the Psalms? How about we just dive in as deeply as we actually can, just try to dig in as much as we possibly can and, and just see where God takes us from there. The purpose is to, to really kind of dig in and, 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 and I, I think just kind of feel the full spectrum of emotion that the psalm writers are expressing. Um, just between you and me and the internet, uh, that's, that's hard for me to do. Anybody else? I, I tend to be more of a cerebral guy. Uh, I, I want, I desire, feel like I'm blessed by and flourish in logical flow. All right. Maybe you're different than me. Maybe you're not like that at all. Maybe you're the opposite of that and you don't understand me most of the time. But like, like my personality wants A to B to C and then now go do D. All right. That, that's who I am. And so uh, that, that's really what I want. Uh, but whenever you're reading the Psalms, man, they just don't give you that. They, they're not even trying to give you that. Um, whenever you're reading through, or, or in my case, preaching a psalm, you gotta, you got to remember to kind of lean more towards, towards what the psalm writers are feeling rather than what the psalm writers are doing. Like, that's kind of the aim here. We, and we talked about this several weeks ago when we talked about Psalm 30, right? Uh, we gathered outside for our big outdoor thing, and we, we looked at Psalm 30 together. And I, I told y'all then that, that rather, than, uh, rather than the Psalms giving you a logical flow of this thing happened or this thing is true, so now therefore go and think about the world this way or live in the world this way, the Psalm writers, they're not aiming for that at all, all right? Uh, they're not doing that. The Psalms instead, they invite you in to experience Experiencing the heart and the struggle of God's people as they lived. That's the aim of the Psalms. And sometimes they're getting it right, and sometimes they're getting it very, very wrong. But man, it's always real. It's always real. As they attempted and usually failed to trust God, as they attempted and usually failed to walk in righteousness, to walk in, in, in obedience, Whatever is coming out of them in that moment, it's all laid out for us to see. It's all laid out for us to 
experience. And that's why we can sometimes finish reading the Psalms and feel like we've been on a little bit of a roller coaster. You ever been there? The up and down, you know, one of the old wooden ones. Chip your teeth as you go down it. Those kinds of things. It's up, it's down, you're not sure if the psalmist needs a high five after you're done or a Xanax. They're just all over the place. And I would hope, I would really hope that everybody in the room has, has several moments where, they, where they're looking at the Psalms and they get finished reading the Psalms and you're not really sure what to do with it. You're not really sure why the person is feeling that emotional about things. Right? You're not sure how to, uh, how to really move on from there. I think we all have those moments. But even if you're not the emotive type, even if, even if you're almost always looking at the world through the cerebral filter, I, I have no doubt that every single one of us has these moments where we look at the Psalms and go, Oh yeah, I know exactly what that, that was like. In fact, that was Thursday for me. While, while it may not be your normal, I think if we're honest, every single one of us, myself especially, has these moments where we look at the bipolar reality of the Psalms and goes, oh, that one's close. I know exactly what they're going through. I've been there. I think we all have moments where praise explodes out of us and it just can't be contained. I also think that we have other moments where we're not sure which way is up and we just cry out. Or am I alone in that? I think there's also these weird moments where it seems to swing wildly in between and we're without any rhyme or reason. You ever been there? Hey, here's an idea. Just a thought. Maybe, just maybe, God preserved the Psalms for us because we're not any different from his people all those years ago. Maybe we're just like them in a lot of ways. Really big highs, really deep lows, and countless grand sweeps in between. So while the Psalms... They may, honestly, be hard to navigate during our more put-together moments. It seems like disciplining ourselves to press in deeply here could actually be good for us in our less put-together moments. Right? So you ready to dig in? Psalm 49. We're going to start with the superscript. It says, to the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. All right, so before we even get, go further than that, uh, even before we get to verse 1, we see, even just in the superscript, who this, this psalm was written by and who it's written for, right? It's written by a group called the sons of Korah. And let's be honest, like if that was a movie title, you'd go see it in a heartbeat. The sons of Korah. Right? That's, a, that's a good sounding movie. You expect Michael Bay to blow some stuff up in that movie, all right? Um, the sons of Korah are accredited with 11 of the Psalms, right? Uh, and there's actually a little bit of debate over, over who they specifically are. Um, there are some that want to argue that, that it's someone else writing under a pseudonym, a, a pen name, all right, uh, instead of the actual group of people. And uh, it's, there's some are, that try to argue that the anonymous writer is actually King Solomon. Uh, mostly because their psalms deal with a lot of wisdom things, right? And so that would make a lot of sense. It sounds like a pretty good theory. And, and, and there's, some, there's some merits to that theory. But, man, I usually find whenever I'm, I'm reading the Bible that the Occam's razor approach is the best effort. 
And so in 1 Chronicles 9 and 1 Chronicles 26, it, it tells us there's, there's this one specific family who is tasked with guarding the gates of the temple and that they're descendants of Korah, a guy who challenged Moses in number 16. And so their sons and grandsons and great-grandsons, it would be their family's job to, to guard the gates of the temple. There were, there were certain places in the temple you could go and certain places you could not go, and it was their family's job to uh, protect the holiness and the sanctity of that place. And, and so the sons, of course, spent a lot of time in and around the temple. And so while it's possible, like really honestly possible, that somebody like Solomon used a synonym, uh, used them as, as his pen name, I, I think... A, a, a much simpler explanation is that this family wrote some music while they were hanging out around the temple. Sound good to you? Sounds good to me. But that's not all we learn from the superscript, right? Not only do we learn who it's written by, we also learn who it's written to. Psalm 49 tells us that it's addressed to the choir master. Or if you're a King James only kind of fanboy, the, the chief musician. The choir master. So all of the psalms were to be sung corporately, all right? Uh, they're, they're meant to be sung, and they're, and they're collected in the Psalter because they were meant to be sung in, in a congregational setting, right? All right? So that's the aim, that's the purpose, that's why they are collected and preserved for us in the Psalter. They're meant to be sung in a corporate or a church setting, but as you'll read through the psalms you'll, on your own, you'll, you'll notice that, that many of them, about a third of them maybe, are addressed to this choir master figure, and then the other ones aren't. So what does that tell us? Well, probably, and, and I think the best theory is that like most of the Psalms, two-thirds-ish of the Psalms, were just written as these songs, these heartfelt expressions, and then they later got picked up and used in a congregational setting. Right? Like you have probably a favorite song that has become used in the church over time. Right? And that, that happens all the time. Somebody writes a song because they want to write a song, and then that song gets used in a church setting. But then there's these other third that are addressed to the choir master, and we think probably that these were expressed written for a church setting. It's not that they just were, were liked and got picked up sometime. No, no, somebody sat down and said, now I'm going to write a song for the congregation. I'm going to say, I'm, I'm going to write a song right now and my entire purpose is that all of God's people are going to sing this together. Last week, Habakkuk closed out his song by saying to the choir master with stringed instruments, Right? Psalm 49 is the same deal. And so, and so this isn't some random song that somebody thought was pretty and decided to bring into the Psalter. This song was written for the express purpose of shaping the worship in the temple. It was meant to be sung as a group. And like all congregational music, it was intended to teach something to the congregation. All music teaches, all congregational music teaches something. The question that leaders always have to ask is if it's teaching something that is worthy of being taught. That, that's, that's the decisions that we make when we're picking songs up here. It's not, ooh, this one sounds nice. It's, it's what does this teach people? All congregational music sings or teaches something. And so the question that we need to ask this morning, according to Psalm 49, is, well, what were the sons of Korah trying to teach us? What do they want to impart to us? And so let's look and see at verse 1. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. All right, so they want to drop some wisdom on you. 
Like that's their aim. They want to give you wisdom. Get everybody together. Gather all the peoples. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you come from. Lean in close because this is for everybody. Huddle up. Let's get it tight, all right? Oh, but I don't associate with that group over there. doesn't matter. It's for you and for them, so get together. That's, that's what they're saying here. Everybody come in close. This is for every class, every demographic. This is for everyone. I'm here to give you wisdom. We're going to speak wisdom. We're going to sing understanding. He says, I'm going to solve a riddle for you. A riddle? What do you think of when you think of a riddle? That's probably a word that's going to trip most of us up, right? Like, like when I think of a riddle, I'm guessing probably when you think of a riddle, you think of something cute, right? A playful little thing. To our ears, a riddle is, is like a word problem. Like this, this short little lighthearted moment that, that's meant to get your brain stirring a little bit. Right? You want it to, to kind of exercise your, your head space. And so a riddle is this fun little, this happy little thing that's meant to be enjoyed. That's meant to kind of, yes, wrestled in, but I mean, it's just good hearted fun, right? That's a riddle to us. But to the Hebrew mind, a riddle is something a lot bigger and a lot darker In fact, some of your translations may even call it a dark saying. A riddle to the Jewish mind is a problem that you're not really sure how to deal with yet. You wrestle with it. You agonize with it. You lose sleep over it. You don't know what your next step is, and it's got you a little scared. That's a riddle. It stands in the way of you getting to rest. It's a scary, unanswered question that haunts you when you're not distracted by other things. Hey, anybody have any of those? <laughs> oh, just me? Anybody have that moment where you don't want to sit in the quiet place because you know what the quiet will bring? You know what kind of questions will emerge and you'd rather avoid them? Definitely alone in that one. See, love them or hate them. At the very least, at the very least, the Psalms, man, they drop you right in the middle of the most massive questions. And they let you sit there and figure it out. It deals with them head on. And because a riddle is bigger than we all naturally assume, it also serves us well this morning to understand that wisdom in the Bible is a whole lot bigger than we normally assume. Maybe you're different, but when I think of wisdom, I tend to think of gray hair and well-earned life experience, right? Yeah. Um, I think of good advice passed on to, to new generations. That, that's what pops into my head when I think of wisdom. Maybe you're different, though. Maybe you think of, like, common sense or street smarts, right? You got intelligent people, then you have wise people, right? The, the, the intelligent people, they sometimes get in their own way. Their intelligence can be a problem, but the wise people, they're doing all right, right? They, they may not have the degrees. They may not have the schooling. They may not have the whatever, but they're, they're street smart like that, right? So you have intelligence and you got wisdom. But if you're walking through the book of Proverbs with us in our monthly Bible reading plan, you're learning this week that, that the Bible understands wisdom as a conscious pursuing of a Godward life. To make a striving effort to keep your eyes on the Lord 
and walk according to his ways rather than what's around you. That's biblical wisdom. It's about, it's about your thoughts and your actions flowing out of a heart that, that first fears the Lord and then keeps everything else in its proper place. That's wisdom in the Bible's understanding. Life, life tends to, to go well for you. You walk in wisdom, not because you're smarter than everybody else, not, not even close, but, but because you're not complicating your life and complicating your circumstances with a, with a foolishness that ignores who God is and ignores what he's called you to, to do and to, to be. And so the sons of Korah here, they, they claim to have a deep, godly wisdom for the dark, scary riddle. So, what, what riddle are they planning on solving for us today? Well, they ask it in verses 5 and 6. The riddle is this. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation, or, I'm sorry, verse 5. Uh, why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches. All right, so, uh, so the question is structured like a Hebrew riddle is, you know, would be structured. But man, I think it can get lost on us, or at least our modern ears, pretty quickly. And uh, so let me try to ask it in a 21st century kind of way. Why do I think the world is falling apart when the bad guys experience success? That's the riddle. Why, why is everything falling apart for me? Why am I distraught? Why am I uh, undone when the bad guys over there win the game? When they walk in glory and success? Or maybe we can say it this way. Why do I shut down and get mad at the world when I lose and the cheaters seem to be rewarded for their cheating? Oh, but Stephen, they, they use the word fear there. Yeah, you're right, they do. But I think that word has more to do with anxiety than it does physical fear, physical harm. They're not worried that their enemies surround them. They're worried that their enemies' iniquity surrounds them. They're surrounded by sinfulness. They're surrounded by people who are succeeding in their sinfulness. They're worried that, that while they try to walk in righteousness, their enemies go on unchallenged in their sin. They flaunt their wealth. They flaunt their defiance. It's a clear, crystal clear that they arrive there by cheating. Everybody knows it. Nobody doubts it, but still the enemy goes on unfaced. They just keep rolling in their open and arrogant iniquity. If you remember, Habakkuk had a similar question about the unfaithful surrounding him in his letter, right? He asked the same questions to God. Hey, God, you ever going to step in here and do something about this? Don't you see what's going on around them, uh, around us? How could you let your people walk this way? How could you let these people do what they're doing and get away with it for so long? Are you ever going to step in and stop this nonsense? You're just going to sit there and let this keep going on? Sure, this is frustrating, but I mean, this is really a dark saying. Is this a big, scary riddle that causes you to lose sleep at night? The more I think about it, the more I think that the answer is yes. I think the answer is yes. Because if, if, if you're trying your hardest to play the game the right way, doesn't this scenario drive you up a wall? Right? 
If, if you're doing what you can to walk in righteousness, to walk in uprightness, to walk in faithfulness, and everybody around you is playing the game with different rules and succeeding by that, don't, don't you get a little stir crazy? I know I do. And like you probably do, the psalmist here, they, they don't only seem to struggle to process how any of this could be fair, but they seem actually debilitated by that struggle. It shuts them down. You ever found yourself in a moment where you wanted to throw your hands up and stop playing the game? Definitely alone on that one, right? As you continue to spin your wheels, trying to walk in faithfulness, and when it's, when, when it's not only possible to win the other way, that seems celebrated. When it's put up on a pedestal, exalted and honored and cherished. Wouldn't it be easier and a whole lot smarter sometimes to, to play with the same rules that the other guys are using and succeeding with? Wouldn't it be smarter sometimes, easier sometimes to just give up on the faithfulness part and just play the game their way? And even as I say that out loud, you already know the answer, right? It's, it's obvious what the answer is. We, we all instinctively understand, we all instinctively know what integrity looks like. It's not complicated. We all get that at a core level. But the more you watch others succeed without integrity, the more we tend to wrestle that, with that anxious fear that what we're doing is all for naught. Right? And so that nagging little word at the very beginning of verse 5, it ends up carrying the world, doesn't it? Why? Why should I fear? And one of the things that I absolutely love about the Bible is that the characters in the Bible, they're, they're constantly asking dumb questions that the answers are pretty obvious to. And I love that about them because that's exactly who I am. Right? constantly asking questions I already know the answer to. They, they seem to wrestle with these things the same way that I wrestle with these things, and I'm guessing probably you wrestle with these things. Sometimes the deepest, darkest riddles of our heart are really, honestly, nothing more than repeated questions with simple answers that we haven't trusted God on yet. Sometimes the deepest, darkest, scariest questions in our world, in our life, whatever this big monster is staring in front of us, sometimes those massive, scary questions are really nothing more than something we haven't actually bothered to trust what God said yet. But maybe the sons of Korah have an obvious Godward wisdom for us here. And so in verse 7, they say this, Truly, no man can ransom another. Or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. Verse 10. For he sees that even the wise die, the foolish and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever. Uh, their dwelling places to all generations. Though they called lands by their own names, man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that 
that perish. Okay, so you've got these guys over here, and, and you can't seem to figure out why they haven't got their comeuppance yet, right? Like, they're over here, they're flourishing, they're doing their, their thing, and they seem to even be celebrated in their iniquity, and you're, kind, you're trying to figure out when is justice going to happen here? When is God going to step in and do something? They're gaining deceitfully, they're successful, even while the good guys are getting run over. When is God going to act on this justice I keep hearing about from him? And then the psalmist reminds us, hey, nobody lives forever. Nobody lives forever. They may trust in the abundance of their riches right now, but man, there's not enough money in the world to ransom their life when the grave is calling. They don't have what it takes. The price is far too costly. It doesn't matter how much wealth they've gotten. It doesn't matter what kind of ill-gotten gains it came from. One day, God is going to call for the check, and they're going to be short. Go ahead and add their position in society to the equation if you want to. It doesn't matter. Rich or poor, smart or ignorant, respected or despised, they're in trouble. They're headed for the pit. You can be surrounded by all the pomp and honor in the world, but you are a temporary resident in this place, and your end is no different than the beast's. The grave. Death. See, sometimes the greatest failure in our hearts to understand why to sometimes the greatest struggle in our hearts when whenever we 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 wrestle with the seeming lack of justice around us honestly it's really just an issue of scale we're zoomed in too close on the timeline god has promised justice for another day he may bring it today but he's promised it for that day especially oh but i want action now yeah me too Man, I feel you. I want it too. But it also assumes that, that the grave is the finish line here. And that any win must necessarily come before that moment for it to count. And preferably far enough before that moment for me to be able to enjoy it for a little while. And the sons of Korah have some more obvious Godward wisdom for us. Verse 13. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence, yet after them people approve of their boasts. Selah. Like sheep they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. And then verse 15. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Selah. So I don't know if you've noticed this or not yet, but we live in a world that thinks that confidence is always the way that you get somewhere. It's the pathway to success, right? I've been fed that advice. Doesn't matter what you're chasing, just chase it diligently. Chase it wholeheartedly and eventually you're going to get there, right? Don't let anybody tell you that you can't blank. Just keep working harder than everybody else and one of these days you're going to end up making it. You go do you. And who knows, maybe, maybe, maybe you will. 
I, I think there's a lot of places in this world that need more hard work. Absolutely. I, I don't think that that plays out as often as we all kind of daydream that it does. I don't think the real world works that way most of the time, but maybe you got the legs for it when nobody else does. Go for it. Either way, though, the Bible repeatedly here pretty clearly argues that confidence is sometimes foolish. Confidence is sometimes incredibly foolish. So the biblical writers just pessimists. Are they the, the Debbie Downer type that's always looking to rain on other people's parade? No, I think they just assume that there's an infinitely more valuable prize that we all ought to be chasing. They think that you're aiming for temporary trinkets in an eternal game. The unrighteous are appointed for death, but there is a mourning that comes after death for the upright. Regardless of however many people might be cheering you on towards the thing that you're chasing, the judge who's keeping score, he sometimes has a wildly different idea of what constitutes the good life. He judges by a different standard, and he's called you to live and to walk and to even see the world a, a certain way. He's also, he's also promised a reward at the finish line for those who belong to him. See, the rich may not have enough to ransom their short-lived life, but God certainly does. He can. He is capable and he is willing to ransom your soul from the power of the grave. How does he do that? Again, you already know the answer. By his finished work on your behalf, your sin, it separates you from God. It owes a debt. A ransom must be paid, we could say. So the eternal Son of God, Jesus, he came, he put on flesh, and he dwelt among us. He lived among us as in, a, in a sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. He died on the cross as an innocent, perfectly innocent substitute to make payment, full and final payment for your sin. And he was raised to life again, raised from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. You and I, insufficient. Doesn't matter whether you want to come with money or prestige or street smarts or good works or a winning smile, you ain't got enough. We are all incapable of ransoming ourselves, but Jesus has done for us what we could not do. And so now as the conquering king, he calls on you to respond to him in repentance and faith. And so in a little bit, we're not there yet, but in a little bit, I'm, I'm going I'm to call for that response. But if you don't know Jesus yet, you don't have to wait for that moment. You don't have to wait for that moment. Do it now. Respond to him now. If you're ready, take the step. While the rest of us, while the rest of the world may be chasing after this thing or after that thing or after whoever, who, you know, who knows what thing, you can choose to follow Jesus. I think you'll be rewarded for that following. While the rest of the game may play by a different set of rules, in fact, they may even be celebrated for that, for that effort. They may be celebrated for things that God despises. They, they might, here's a crazy thought, they might even be celebrated for things that God promises his wrath to come upon. While the rest of the world may 
play by a different set of rules, you can live and you can walk and you can see the world in a way that's aiming for what comes after the grave. A faith-filled ambition to pursue a better prize. And what is that better prize? Look again at the back half of verse 15. What does it say? For he will receive me. And then the psalm writers call the congregation Selah. Rest here. Stop and dwell on this. Find your rest in this. Think deeply on this truth and then respond with praise. All right? the, the ultimate prize here is not that we get to hold our heads up high and, and know that we lived with integrity at the finish line. I mean, that sounds really noble and all, but that ain't the prize. All right? Even though it's a step in a better direction, the prize isn't merely that we get existence on the other side of the grave. I mean, that's kind of cool, but it's also kind of boring. You can make an argument for some things, but it seems like a whole lot of time to do nothing. Now, the prize, whether we're talking about Psalm 49 or we're talking about any other place in the Bible you want to point to, the prize is that we get God. He will receive us. We are freely and joyfully welcomed into his holy presence forever. He will receive us. Why would I choose to suffer through the iniquity surrounding me? Why would I put up with or, or, or even endure the seeming success of the wicked, the cheaters? Why would I, uh, I'm not saying I don't like it, but why would I, I put up with that and continue playing the game the way God calls me to even while they experience success, even while they experience praise? Why would I do that? It's because I have a much better offer on the table. I don't care what you get. I know what I'm aiming for. You can have what you're chasing. Oh, you schemed and connived your way to the top? What a pathetic little victory for you. I'm aiming for something better. You enjoy your thing while it lasts, I guess. I have eternal eyes on an eternal prize. I'd rather pursue something that moth and rust can't destroy and thieves could never break in and steal. Which leads the sons of Korah to write this next in verse 16. Be not afraid when man becomes rich. For when the glory of his house or when the glory of his house increases, for when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers, who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. Earthly success is neither sinful or wrong, not even close. They are a good thing to pursue. So hear me clearly. If you have the ability, I think you ought to pursue earthly success. I think God would call his people to chase after those things. And, and on the day that you achieve those things, you're going to earn on that day appropriate attention and acclaim. People are going to clap for you and you're going to be sitting on top of the mountain. It's going to be great. You deserve accolades on that day. It's just, it's just not ever worthy of, of trading an internal investment for. 
chase what you want, just don't give up things that'll be here 10,000 years for something that's going to be gone 10 days from now. Jesus would come along later and say the same thing in a different way. For what does it profit a man to, if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? And wisdom, a Godward life, it sees and it understands the categories that everything falls into. It puts things in their proper place. It's a Godward life that first fears the Lord and then keeps everything else in its proper place. Your thoughts and your actions flow out of that and experience influenced by that and, and shaped by that life tends to go well for you. Not, not because you're smarter than everybody. It's not even close. But because you're not complicating your life and complicating your circumstances with a foolishness that ignores who God is and what he's called you to do and to be. In the Bible, wisdom means avoiding the pitfalls that the rest of the world seems to always be falling into, but not because you're the brightest guy in the room, it's because you're chasing after something that doesn't have a whole lot of pitfalls. You're not wasting your time on the, on the, the path that, that's full of pitfalls. And so in verse 30, the sons of Korah repeat what they said in verse 12. But there's a shift there. In verse 12, it says, man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beast that perish. But in verse 20, verse 20, it says, man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. There's a qualifier, right? We, we, something has shifted. Something has changed. And so, uh, church family, there is an answer to the dark, scary riddle. Understanding. Well, it would be natural to, to look around at, at the success of the unrighteous and throw up our hands. Well, it would be natural, I think, to, to walk away from faithfulness and walk away from uprightness and instead play the game based on the rules that the winners are operating on. The truth is, is that you and I see the field better than they do. We see more of the game than they do. And we forget that sometimes. Maybe you're different. I know I do. I forget that sometimes. I lose sight of the grand scope of what I've been called to and I focus just on this narrow little moment and because I don't see the grand scope, I get caught up in the chaos of the little moment. But at the same time, I also think that that walking in wisdom, I also think that, that we tend to make this way more complicated than it has to be. On a nuts and bolts level, living with an eternally focused wisdom is actually pretty intuitive. We may think it's this grand sounding thing, but it's really not. The reality is that we all make decisions in life based on the circumstances that we see in front of us. It just comes natural to us and if you don't think you're going to be somewhere very long, you, you do life differently. You make different investments than if you think you're going to be there the next 20 years and the next 100 years. Your investments look different. 
We also make different decisions whenever we think that we're in the middle of some kind of fight and sacrifices need to be made. We don't have to think about it in that moment. We just kind of do. We know what's in front of us. We know the issue that, that's in place. We know that we're uh, aiming for this thing on the other side of it, and so we act. And so I, I know that it's going to sound incredibly too simplistic. I really get that. But truthfully, I think the answer to walking in wisdom in this life is really as simple as keeping your eyes on your Savior. It doesn't have to be more complicated than that. Just stare a hole through Him. Continue to keep your eyes on Him. To keep your eyes on Him and keep your eyes on what He has promised to you. You don't need some self-help book that will you know, finally unlock your potential. You don't need to out-hustle everybody. You don't need to find some guru who will you know, get you on the path to mindfulness. Whatever it is, you, you need to keep your eyes on your Savior. Biblical wisdom is a faith-filled, Godward living. So maybe a question that needs to be asked this morning is, what are you pursuing in this world? What are you chasing after? And maybe as important, how are you pursuing it? Whether you've, whether you've been successful or not, what if, what if the frustration that we experience as the game swirls on around us has more to do with style and purpose than it does with win percentage? What if we're chasing the wrong thing or chasing things in the wrong way? What if that's really what's causing the heartache? Or we can ask the question in a different way. God has spoken. How do we respond? How do we respond to, to God's word? Let's, listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, man, I think your response is the same thing that it is every single week. You repent of your sin and you lean into his goodness, right? You, you lean into the one who joyfully and willingly calls you his own and promises infinitely more than this world could ever offer. You want to test him on that? Infinitely more. And then, I know this is going to sound crazy, I do, but like right after that, you go and live as if you actually believe that's true. I think we all can kind of lock into that mentally, give it a scent in some kind of headspace kind of level, but, it, but when it starts affecting the way you live, when it starts affecting the way you walk out the door here and what you spend your money on and how you spend your time and how you talk to people and all these kinds of things, man, that, that's really where the rubber meets the road. You structure your life around it. You invest yourself in it. You put everything on the table and then you walk away with abandon. Why? Because the great promise maker is also the great promise keeper. He's good like that. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. That's a, that's a time for you to put action to what God is stirring in your heart. But what about those of you who aren't followers of Jesus yet? Can you respond to God's word this morning? Yep. Do that by meeting Jesus. You tired yet? Like, like seriously tired? You grown weary yet of chasing what the rest of the world kills itself over? Kills itself chasing after? Jesus one time said, come to me all who are troubled and heavy laden and I will give them rest. It's a good rest.
It's a really good rest. And so repent of your sin this morning and trust in his finished work on the cross on your behalf to reconcile you to God. And I'd love to be helpful to you. Whether you're in the room or you're watching us online right now, I'd love to be helpful to you. So come see me after we're done, and I'd love to help you walk through, navigate through what this pathway of uh, repentance looks like. And so I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. However, God is calling you to respond to his word this morning. Let's do that together as a church family right now. Father, thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the Psalms. Thank you for... even for deep, dark, scary questions. We don't like them. But I've found in life that when I engage, when I lean into the dark, scary question, you're already there. You walk with me. And you go before me. And you call me to yourself. God, as the circumstances around me sometimes feel like they're caving in, would you help keep my eyes on you rather than my circumstances? Would you help keep my eyes on on what you've called me to on an eternal perspective rather than just the narrow strip I see in front of my eyes right now? God, that's not always easy to do. I cling to these lesser things so tightly. Thank you for being patient with me. Thank you for being gentle with me. Pull my fingers off. I need it. Rip them away if necessary. God, help me to see that there's something much better coming. And I don't have to lose heart in doing good. I can trust that you are good. God, for those who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known this morning? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to know, even at at this time, would you draw people by your grace into your kingdom? We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.